Greetings, friends of the great beyond. This is your ghost, I mean host, ready to take you behind the veil of terror and leftist critique. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. And hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Horror Vanguard. Uh, this is going to be part of our series of interviews with uh, activists, writers, organizers, political commentators who are all part of what we on the show have been calling uh, the the spooky left, uh, the left which is uh, interested in uh, the gothic in all of its forms. Um, and I am uh, delighted that, to be joined uh, by Richard Seymour. Richard, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, for those of you, uh, for those of our listeners who maybe have not come across you and your work uh, before, would you mind giving uh, a sort of brief outline of uh, of who you are and, and what you do and what kind of work you put out? Well, um, currently I'm a, a, a commissioning editor at Salvage magazine. Uh, I'm one of the founders, and Salvage is very much uh, part of the spooky left that you just mentioned, I think. Um, certainly we're on the gothic end of things. Um, uh, I am a writer. I've been writing books and uh, articles and whatnot for a long time. I was a um, Guardian columnist for a while, wrote for, written for numerous other publications, New York Times, LRB, all that stuff. Stuff. Um, the main thing that I wrote for a long, long time was a blog called Lenin's Tomb, uh, which was this sort of repository of undead ideas, if you like. <laughs> um, uh, and, you know, Patreon uh, now hosts my writing because it's a way to make money. Um, so um, this is this is basically uh, my project at the moment uh, is to um, get to grips with the emerging sort of industry of platforms, social platforms and so on, what I call the social industry. And that's what my latest book, The Twittering Machine, is all about. Um, yeah, that's brilliant. Thank you so much. Um yeah, I definitely recommend uh, checking out a lot of Richard's work. And as always, links to uh, all of the things uh, that you've talked about will be in the show notes. Salvage, especially as uh, part of the Spooky Left, is an invaluable resource uh, full of some of the most interesting thinkers and writers uh, currently working on British politics. Um, and yes, the new book, The Twittering Machine, is uh, an exceptional read. Um, what's really interesting about it is that you open it by describing it as a horror story. Um, so with that in mind, could you, could you maybe uh, explain a little bit about what you think the horror of this story is? That's a good question. Um, I think that... Uh... I don't have to sort of make the case for it being a horror because it's been in the news every day for the last few years. We're in the middle of what some people would call a tech lash. So every day we're hearing about trolls on social media, we're hearing about fake news, we're hearing about the alt-right, we're hearing about misogynists, MRA trolls, and so on. And uh, often sort of spitting out of these online culture wars like sparks from a blaze uh, are these lone wolves uh, who uh, are situated very clearly on these social industry platforms, uh, on social media, as they call it. Um, and there's a, a whole list of uh, things that are supposedly wrong with this industry. Um, 
And to th- to, to be honest, I have an ambivalent relationship to this horror story, as it were. Mm. One is, um, you know, the, the, on the one side, I think it's 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 talking about something that's absolutely true. Like, for example, uh, almost all research on uh, this shows that uh, exposure to social media platforms is correlated with increased depression, increased suicidal behavior, increased self-harm. Um, and it's not hard to work out the reasons why that is, especially if you've spent any time on these platforms. They can become extremely nasty, but they can also be sources that of anxiety they can also eat up your time and you know they're, they're like many other petty little addictions you know they they sort of drain away your life so um there's a there's a part of this that all, all of this is true i could go on and talk about uh, you know of course the alt-right have grown on uh, social media um in ways that they probably would not have uh mm-hmm. in previous systems um so that's obviously true as well i think to be honest uh isis the islamic state a mobile theocracy was basically a social industry phenomenon um and would have had no means to engage in their um innovative recruitment methods um, and state-building techniques beyond uh, Iraq, probably, uh, were not for their ability to use uh, social industry to recruit tens of thousands of people globally. So, I mean, you know, I could go on and on and on, but then the, the problem comes up, isn't this just scapegoating? Isn't this just scaremongering? I mean, did yeah. all the, were all these problems just invented overnight? Um, were we not depressed before? Was there not suicidal behavior before? Did we? I mean, what was the era of non-fake news? When was the era of unalloyed truth-telling? on the part of the mass media uh, you know when were they not lying to us about war crimes and not lying to us about what the government was up to when were they not publishing corporate press releases as news more or less without editing them or publishing government briefings as facts all of this stuff is established behavior um, and then you talk about fake news you think about what that is as an example um, what we call fake news uh, com- comprises lots of different things on the one hand it includes things like uh, infotainment you know like yeah. a, a clickbait website will say such and such a celebrity has died and it'll be like, oh my god such a celebrity has died you've got to share it around and then you find out that of course they're very much alive um, and that's one aspect of it another aspect of it is uh, stuff like um, uh, government propaganda. Okay, so there are, there are governments involved in uh, maintaining what are called troll armies, sock puppets. You know, basically they put bots out there. They pay uh, individ- human beings to troll. They you know engage in all this sort of all these sort of strategies of cyber war. So that's all going on. Um, and then it can also include things like individuals posting nonsense and ill-informed drivel, which again is not new. Or it can in- involve things like um, conspiracy theories, which again, mm-hmm. um, you know, are, are deeply rooted in the culture. And basically what has happened, I think, is that tendencies that were already afoot in uh, the old mass media uh, have just been purified and radicalized. And, you know, um, that's one aspect of it. You could uh, talk about uh, the aspect of it that has to do with addiction. You could talk about the aspect of it that has to do with um, online celebrity and so on. Basically... As with all addictions, um, the toxicity um, partly resides in the user. Mm. Um, You know, there's um, a well-known phenomenon where 
the effect of a drug that you take, for example, um, because we think of addictions in terms of chemical substances and so on, the effect of a drug, um, even if it's the same drug, the same quantities, will vary wildly between individuals. That's called the subject effect. So it's not just about the drug. It's about what's in you. Uh, it's about your psychodynamics. It's about your relationships, um, ways in which they might be disappointing to you, ways in which they might have failed, ways in which you might feel you failed. All of that stuff, all of that very human stuff and all of that stuff that it's also part of our social reality. So if we want to start talking about this horror story, it's a horror story that's partly about us as human beings, but it's also a horror story that's about the society that we live in. Um, and, you know, as with all scapegoating narratives, moral panics, in other words, um, there's always a sense in which it, it's, it's actually reassuring. It's more reassuring than the truth, however horrifying, because the truth um, is that these problems are diffuse, they're complicated, and they're spread out through the institutions, through um, the whole of society, um, rather than being concentrated in a neatly identified scapegoat. So I think um, this is, you know, why I have a, a an ambivalent relationship to the horror story. But it is, nonetheless, a horror story. Yeah, I think I think you've said a lot in that, which is really fascinating to me because, you know, classically the horror story is about the the kind of liminal figure, the the monster that stands on the kind of discursive and epistemological edge of something. And mm -hmm. so and so when something goes wrong, we can formulate a, a kind of sensible and coherent group identity by defining ourselves in opposition to that which is over there. Um, I mean, if you look at the Gothic novel in the late 18th and early 19th century, it's easily arguable that it's it's right anti-catholicism emerged as a way of kind of solidifying english bourgeois identity against the kind of radical uh religions of europe you know we could say well we're not like that we're not like mm. the catholic europe we're we're sensible and 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 english and uh deeply hypocritical obviously um but what i think you've hit upon which is extremely interesting is the extent to which the the horror story is always a expression of something that is uh subjectively psychologically true about ourselves and about the culture from which that horror story emerges um yeah. so so where should where should we start with uh with talking about this horror story i think you've 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 laid down some interesting uh connections here um particularly around addiction particularly around kind of radical uh right-wing politics and terrorism um but i think perhaps we could start with the kind of bigger picture the, these bigger political aspects of this horror story and then mm -hmm. kind of zero in on on the kind of postmodern subject, the, the the people who spend way too much time on the bird site or um, way too much time scrolling through Facebook. Well, that's me, uh, and that's probably a lot of people. Uh, that's several billion people on the planet uh, spend way too much time on these platforms. Um, I would say uh, one way to approach this is to ask, what kind of power is this? Because it's quite unfamiliar in many ways. It's not just uh, that these are business empires, you know, Google, Facebook, and so on. They are business empires, um, but they're also so much more than that. Uh, they have massive surveillance powers. Um, in, in a way, 
the internet is just an elaborate surveillance mechanism. It's one computer looking at another and another and so on. Um, and uh, the uh, sort of the social industry platforms um, are essentially mechanisms for gathering data from us. So they have to sort of watch us constantly. The thing is, they don't have to do it uh, in an underhanded way necessarily, though there is a bit of that. But because the whole point is that it's part of the deal. You get these tools, that's what it's sold to you as, in exchange for you providing them with constant data about yourself. Understand mm -hmm. that it's not just they're looking at you and you're passively giving off this data. You're feeding it in. You're typing, you're scrolling, you're clicking through. Everything you do on these platforms is telling them stuff about you. So this is an incredibly sophisticated um, form of surveillance. So that's another thing. So it's, it's combining the powers of a giant corporation with the powers of a state. Um, but there's something else because it's... It's a, it's a form of industry that's never really existed before. It's the most profitable industry in the world now. Let's just be clear about that. Um, I remember back in the day uh, when the oil giants were the big corporations. They were the most profitable companies. You know, it was ExxonMobil or it was Halliburton or something like that. Um, they're you know they're barely you know barely even remember them now because Google has uh, you know taken the lead and Facebook too, and they're uh, sucking up all the profits of the uh, mass media companies. So they're a hugely profitable industry, but they're a unique kind of industry because we. You know, if if it was a state organization, we'd be saying, well, we're not voters, so what are we? Mm. Uh, you know, it's not a democracy. And it's uh, in, in as much as they're uh, corporate organizations, well, we're not consumers as such, are we? Because we don't buy anything. Actually, you know, we're the product. So yeah. there's something else going on there. I think it's um, something a bit more like a laboratory as far as we're concerned, a sort of laboratory come factory um, where we are wageless workers. So this is where I get to the bit where I say, I explain the reason why I keep using the term the social industry, because most normal people would say social media. The problem is that social media is um, instant propaganda. Um, and the reason it's instant propaganda is because all media are social. You know, there's no such thing as non-social media. The whole point of it being the media is so, is that it's social. It's for it to be social, yeah. Right. All technologies are, in one way or another, social, right? So um, that's built in. So you're basically um, calling it that, making it uh, impossible to object to. You know, who could be against social media? Um What's really at stake here is something else. Um, and the, the term social industry is a riff on uh, Theodore Adorno's uh, concept of the culture industry. Just to uh, give your listeners a brisk reminder of what this involves, <laughs> um, uh, the culture industry, according to Adorno, is basically a, a system in, or, you know, like Hollywood, the Hollywood Dream Factory, in which um, mass cultural production takes place along very carefully, or not necessarily carefully, but very structured, uh, organized, regimented lines, such that it just keeps repeating the same conservative habits of thought, the same good guys, the same bad guys, the same ways of resolving dramas, the same ways of expressing wishes, and so on, all of that stuff. But basically, um, it sort of it 
it reduces culture to a parody of itself um, in order that it can be replicated. So it's um, ceaselessly replicated in order to generate profit. So what he's talking about there is the commodification of culture at at the Mm. most radical extreme. Now, some people would say that Adorno had overestimated um, the conformity even of the Hollywood production line and that there was a lot more individuality in cultural products than he was letting on. But I think you could make that case. I mean, I can see some of that. But um, with the social industry, you really can't make that sort of case because actually – Every single social interaction that takes place, although there's a certain latitude with regard to the ends to which you will use these media, um, everything is very carefully programmed. Mm. It all takes place within uh, a sort of tyrannical uh, means structure, as it were. Uh, In other words, um, uh, for example, uh, if you go on Twitter, there's a certain character limit. There's um, a certain set of protocols about how you engage. Uh, You have to have a profile picture, a description of yourself. Um, You can like other people's statements. You can retweet them. There's certain types of engagement that you're permitted. Um, And... You know, um, the, 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 uh, these automate certain people's human purposes. What do I mean by that? I mean, any bit of computer programming or code is essentially the automation of somebody's purposes, somebody's mm. um, goals. And in this case, these uh, are the designs of a fairly small handful of humanity based in Northern California, um, Silicon Valley. And uh, if you look at Alice Marek's research uh, into this, and she used to work at Microsoft, she did a PhD in this. Basically, these are the values. Uh, sorry, the values of neoliberal capitalism. These yeah. are the values of hierarchy, status-oriented, uh, celebrity worship, uh, the values of competi- competition, of individualism, and so on. And so, you've got this machinery that's set up for celebrity. That's the first thing. Merely by having an account, you have a public relations image. Merely by choosing what to tweet or post or whatever, you have a public relations strategy. Um, You have to. So you may not have the resources of a giant PR company, but you are a celebrity whether you like it or not. You are a micro-celebrity, as it were. That's That's the terminology. And everything is very carefully coded and organized. Now, that's at a foundational level. That is a lot more sophisticated and subtle Uh, than simply buying a newspaper, as you might do if you're a billionaire, and using it to blare out your idiotic opinions (laughs) to millions of people. You know, like Rupert Murdoch buying The Sun. Okay, he had some effect. He really did have a significant effect. But um, it was a a very crude effect. And quite often, you know, I mean, there was notorious surveys uh, throughout the 80s and 90s showing that Sun readers were more likely to vote Labour than Tory, despite the fact that the paper was overwhelmingly Tory. So, Mm. I mean, you know, the point is it it wasn't all powerful. Now, the social industry, of course, is not all powerful either. And the thing about it is, is they're not interested in programming content. That's not what they're worried about. What they're worried about is programming the, um, uh, the forms of interaction, the ways in which you interact with one another. Um, and, 
if you think about the fact that, for example, uh, most, uh, let me see, there's a statistic, take it uh, with a pinch of salt. The average global internet user spends 135 minutes a day on one or other social industry platform. Okay. Mm. Now, uh, that figure can't be right, um, but it, it hints at a scale. Well, if you think about that, most people probably don't spend that much time talking to their friends face to face on a daily basis. You know, so when if if you put it like that, this is your social life. If this is what you do, um, if this is most of the time you spend interacting, then interacting through these protocols um, uh, is is your social life. In other words, your social life has been written for you. It's been formatted for you. Um, it's been carefully uh, fitted with rewards and incentives and grooves uh, that will lead you down. You know these pathways strewn with rewards, you know, you'll get certain amount of likes. And then, of course, uh, apart from the rewards, there's the so-called negative reinforcement. There's the uh, habitual shitstorms on the social industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, uh, as I as I will argue uh, later, that you know, that that is also part of the addictive mechanism. It's not just the rewards. But the point is that it's all very carefully programmed. Now, if you're somebody with a, a, an ideology um, to spread um, and you know how to use this system, then first of all, you've got a lot more of a subtle way of reaching your audience, of far finding more precise, it. Far more precise. Pardon me? Far more precise than the kind of far... propaganda of Murdoch, for example. Absolutely. It's extraordinarily precise. Um, I mean, this goes right back to the beginning when Facebook was just being launched. Um, They um, were approached by Interscope Records and um, they had a song called Hollaback Girl, um, uh, which was uh, they wanted it to be a cheerleader's anthem. And Facebook could guarantee that the adverts for the song would be seen by cheerleaders because they knew who was a cheerleader Mm -hmm. on this platform. Yeah, yeah. So that's how precise it is. Okay, so um, you've got a great mechanism for audience discovering, but you've also got a certain kind of spurious intimacy, not just the fact that you're reaching people literally in their pockets because you you know you keep your phone on you at all times charged up you know you're always waiting to see what notifications you're going to get so it's very intimate in that sense but also in the sense that everything on your feed is carefully um uh, arranged for you now the pl- the algorithms are not necessarily uh, as good as they would like you to think um they often get it wrong but the point is that the algorithms are designed to present you with a, a feed a, a stream of uh, bits of things that will keep keep you interacting, that will goad you into writing back. In other words, if you spend uh, even just 20 minutes just scrolling through your Twitter feed, there's going to be one or two or three things that you're going to see on there that will drive you nuts, that will make you think, jeez, I need to I need to get off. The, I need to write something about this. This is awful. You know, something terrible Trump said or uh, a friend of yours has said something disappointing or, you know, a news story that you didn't like. And you're going to want to, you know, the only catharsis is to actually write. So mm. everything's designed to sort of goad you in that way. Well, if somebody can devise content that reaches you like that, it's a lot more like uh, whispering, a sort of a whispering voice directly in your ear than the kind of foghorn blare of the sun or whatever. Um, 
so that's I mean that's a big part of that. Uh, but also, you know, as I say, more fundamentally, there are consequences of organising social life on the basis of this competitive like hunt. Um, and I would suggest that the ideologies that are most congruent with that um, and with the kinds of rhythms of interaction that develop on the social industry are the ideologies that are going to do best on the social industry. And so when people ask, why is it that the alt-right and the far-right are doing best on YouTube? Why is YouTube that become this mechanism for red-pilling? Why is why was a fifth of Twitter's value in 2017 down to Donald Trump and his Twitter storms alone? All mm. of that stuff. When you ask these questions, I would say you want to ask about what kinds of sociality are being produced by the social industry, because that, among other things, is its product. I think you raise a really interesting point there and something that I think that people who identify as on the left or committed to a kind of radical socialist, anarchist or communist politics should really pay attention to because if you look at the uh, the rebirth of radical politics uh, after the, the the systemic series of neoliberal collapses across much of much of Europe, England especially, uh, America. You see the kind of rebirth of the democratic socialists of America. You see the growth of momentum and of Corbyn's Labour Party. A lot of that is driven by a lot of its success and its reach is driven by these social industries as well. And yeah. I think I think you you raise a kind of distinctly kind of troubling question there as to uh, what does that mean for the questions of political agency and organization if that is the kind of product that sells well in the social industry marketplace? Um, yes, of course. Uh, just to be clear, um, I, I, I think it's absolutely the case that um, the uh, rise of the social industry also presents opportunities for the left. Yeah, that doesn't mean the left is dominated, um, uh, and actually, it's demonstrably not the case that the left is dominated. Nonetheless, it's true Corbyn uh, wouldn't be leader of the Labour Party today in all likelihood were it not for the ability of activists to outflank the mass media mm. um, and you know use online networks to promote uh, different messaging. So I think that's quite important. Um, however, there was once um, this rather sort of cyber utopian idea that, um, you know, this was before people had engaged in a really thorough political economy of um, the social industry platforms. But there was the idea that uh, it would create networks of uh, horizontality. You know, mm. people would engage with one another as equals and you could bypass the old mass media and its monopolies. You know, it wouldn't just be one-way traffic with the newspapers and the media broadcasting and blaring meaning at you nonstop. You could uh, do, do your own reporting. You know, you could be citizens journal journalists and, mm. um, or you could uh, make sure... Like, I was, I'm old enough to remember when... If you went on a protest in Britain, you had to wonder, will anybody even see this and will it be covered? Will Will The Guardian run an article with a, a picture of a, an upside down placard? You know, yeah. Uh, will the BBC um, sort of uh, give a short bit of footage with a, a quote from the police, massively underestimating the scale of the protest? It, you know, all that sort of stuff because so much relied on the semiotics. Well, 
that's not even really an issue now, um, because if you have a protest of any size, it's going to explode on the social industry. Even if it's not that big, it might develop a certain kind of momentum. So we shouldn't sort of um, uh, underestimate that. And certainly my argument is not that we can uh, put the toothpaste back in the tube. However, yeah, uh, I think we Sorry, I I was just going to say, I think that you've hit upon that ambivalence really well that we can't, you know, we can't go back to a kind of pre- uh, a pre-fall, pre-lapsarian, uh, non-technological political economy. But at the same time, this kind of myth of, of cyber utopia is one that's actually incredibly dangerous to continue to buy into. Yeah, especially given, I mean, look, um, uh, as I mentioned, the, the, you know, the big movement to benefit from the social industry over the last few years has been the Islamic State. Um, mm. And, you know, the main political candidates uh, to benefit have been linked to right wing sort of movements like uh, the Tea Party, the alt-right, um, uh, the fascist right or neo-fascist right in Brazil, the Hinduva movement uh, in India, uh, all of that stuff. Um, so this is, you know, where the uh, thrust is. So I think we need to start to think, you know, well, that's what the empirical data is telling us. Uh, um, and how does that? How should that inform our analysis of the social industry? Or rather, how can we explain the data? How can we an- analyze uh, this industry in such a way that it gives us an adequate account of the data? Now, I don't have a complete explanation. Um, I have a hunch that there is. Um, a fascist potential or something about the social industry that is beneficial to a kind of incipient fascism. Um, And I have a number of sort of thoughts about why this might be true. One of them is to do with the ways in which taken, for example, YouTube red pilling. One Mm. of them is the ways in which um, uh, it it sort of purifies the tendency towards um, uh, confusing politics with infotainment. Um, So you know, the, the rise of infotainment as politics on the mass media has already been going on for many decades. On YouTube, look, everything is about infotainment because it's all about uh, the addictive mechanism. Um, and so the question is, their, their watch next algorithms will suggest to you content based upon what uh, they their machine learning uh, algorithms have figured out you would probably be interested in. Even if they don't know why you would be interested in it, basically they will guide you along a pathway to other content that will keep you watching. That's all they want to do. Now, um, the uh, you know the, the, there's a number of journalists who pointed out that actually if you follow um, these uh, paths, the Upnext system will guide you towards more and more so-called extreme content. Male rage, conspiracy theory, Holocaust revisionism, 9-11 truth, all of that stuff. So I think here extreme content is really akin to extreme sport. It's a kind of illicit thrill delivered mm. automatically and intimately by a machine that knows us better than we know ourselves. So 
they don't necessarily prefer far-right content. Google doesn't necessarily prefer false flag theories about recent lone wolf attacks or whatever. Um, it's just that the algorithms are figuring out that there's something wildly addictive about this stuff for a certain kind of person. And it um, it sort of gives it to you without any guilt. You know, nobody's watching. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, it's you didn't search for it. Just why not see? Why not see what it says? And then, you know, um, the, you get Jordan Peterson on one end and then maybe uh, Stefan Molyneux on the other end and... You know, you get red-pilled, as it were. Then there's also the stuff about uh, the online culture wars. There's something very particular about the social industry. Um, I think it's a cultural accelerator. Um, I think that what it does is that partly because of the uh, its internal politics of identity, uh, which is quite different from the politics of identity that, you know, we're used to, you know, the idea that if you're uh, racially oppressed, then you develop an identity in opposition to that, you know, that kind of thing. Um, that's a mm. sort of, um, that's another form of identity politics. But the social industry has its own, which is this. Um, if you're on there, you must constantly labor to produce an image, an identity for yourself. Mm. And that identity has to be as true to itself as possible, as consistent as possible. Because once you hit upon a winning formula, you've got to make sure you get all the likes. And if you stop doing uh, what's winning, you won't get the likes. So this is, I mean, obviously that's crude. People engage for lots of different reasons. But... The fact that they organize everything around the economy of likes is quite significant. And the fact that they've done this um, arises because it makes a massive difference to user engagement. User engagement exploded when Facebook first introduced this. And obviously, most of the other platforms had to follow suit, Twitter included. So here's the point. The point is that um, if you've got a system set up like that, when a complicated issue arises, like, for example, uh, uh, you get uh, Gamergate, hashtag Gamergate. Well, in some ways, that's not very complicated. That's just a bunch of men getting worked up about women making advances in the gaming industry. But it quickly became complicated because it filtered in a whole range of other issues and other um, uh, sort of anxieties. And it uh, subjected it to um, this... Um, uh, shitstorm treatment so yeah. that you had, you know, bypassers, you know, people, uh, anybody with nuance being slimed and, you know, all the rest of it. It was an absolute mess. And that's actually quite typical of, uh, of the kinds of shitstorms that you get on the social industry. And the result was that it consolidated the first expressions of alt-right identity, particularly the MRA sort of wing of it. Um, Berthergate was another uh, ex expression of this, and notably it was Berthergate that catapulted Trump to the top. Mm. So this is, um, you know, uh, uh, one of the ways in which identities and cultures in particular, and it's not um, identities in the old political sense that I mentioned, it's a new form of identity politics, which uh, can, means that they congeal around the issues that arise on social media. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you begin to become identified with a particular uh, in-group, 
uh, based upon your approach to that issue. Um, okay, so that tends to rigidify cultural boundaries that might previously have been a bit more porous, that might previously have been a bit more mobile. They tend to become more like, you know, uh, militarized frontiers. Um, so that's uh, uh, one aspect of it, another aspect of it. And then I think, of course, there's the fact that, you know, there's a general crisis of knowledge um, going on in our society. People don't trust the media. People don't trust politicians. People don't trust experts. People don't trust legitimate authorities, as it were. There are good reasons for this. And I'm not going to pretend that people should trust our mass media or our politicians. But within that gap, conspiracism has thrived. And um, conspiracist infotainment in particular, um, you know, thriving on paranoia amid a general breakdown in social trust, which is radicalized on the social industry, by the way, because Mm. you never know if your interlocutor is a troll or a Russian sock puppet. Well, you know, that becomes a basis uh, or or a a way in which people can start to make sense of the world. Um, It becomes, you know, you you, you get the situation where in a a massive crisis of meaning, people start to form little ad hoc investigatory committees, you know, 9-11 truth, Hillary Clinton's sex slaves, all of that sort of stuff. The growth growth of the flat earth movement would seem to be an excellent example. Yeah, spreading all around the globe. (laughs) I think I think you've 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 given given me so much to think about here but a couple of the things that I wanted to pick up on is this idea of the horror story the horror is it the horror is as the horror always is the confrontation with the self um the fact that these uh these industries these these productivity centers these these places in which we have become kind of feverishly desperately constantly writing and reading in a kind of very blurred loop are ways of um avoiding a kind of confrontation with with our with ourselves and, and uh, i think that that brings in in some really interesting ideas about horror generally i think the point you made there about the ways in which the social industry appeals to um what wilhelm reich would call the fascist in our heads um, is is really true that you know the great question that that Deleuze and Guattari wrote about you know why did the people desire their own repression um, mm. and in this case you know why did why did the people desire their own red pilling on on uh, birtherism or on the men's rights movement it's because there's something within subjectivity as it's been constructed under contemporary decaying neoliberal capitalism that produces this kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that uh, you're right to focus on uh, the aspect of popular desire because, first of all, uh, if if these industries weren't answering our desires in one way or another, we wouldn't be there Um, and it wouldn't be so compulsive. So I suppose that's one thing. Um, and it certainly does, uh, you know, uh, I think uh, Deleuze and Guattari uh, talk about um, popular desire being liberated uh, mm. in the context of fascism. And there's certainly, um, uh, you know, an element of truth in this. Uh, and 
it's it, it does call us call our attention to uh, a level of analysis which is missing in a lot of left approaches to fascism because most of the time we're thinking about fascism not at the sort of at the level of micro fascisms as they called it but at the level of macro fascisms big political structures colonialism you know total war um, uh, the sort of uh, concept of race and its operations um, uh, the state and its central all of these are big issues, and of course, not to mention, you know, class. But there, you know, there there are also levels of analysis uh, where things are going on uh, in everyday relations and everyday behaviour where fascist desires can take root, and that's what we have to try and investigate. So, you know, one way to pose this question is to ask: There's a guy called Darren Osborne who, you know, at one point was um, a depressed, unemployed, alcoholic, suicidal Welshman, um, or rather a man who was living in Wales anyway. And he um, was not known for being wildly political. Um, he was just somebody whose life was a bit of a mess and he was regarded as unpleasant, probably a bit of a burden um, for his family. But, you know, uh, he was struggling. He was really desperately struggling. He was terribly unhappy. Uh, and then within three weeks, just three weeks of uh, obsessively digesting a sort of red pilling content, especially Tommy Robinson's uh, YouTube feeds, um, he became what he considered a soldier against Islam. And mm. he said, I want to kill all Muslims. He killed one Muslim, but he was psychically fueled for genocide. He would have killed them all if he could. Um, and I want to sort of ask, well, okay, uh, it would be a good question to ask. First of all, what was already in him that had that capacity? That's an important mm. question. You know, you don't just become a racist overnight. There's a lot of racism circulating in a society where Muslims in particular have been a punching bag uh, for politicians and the press um, for the last couple of decades. That's yeah. one thing. Um, but then there's also, you know, the question of, uh, you know, if this guy was bitterly depressed and, you know, had tried to get himself committed and was and was considered suicide and all the rest of it, uh, what is it about the red pill that makes it such an effective antidepressant? Why yeah. is that the best antidepressant you could ever come across? Um, and I think that aspect of the social industry as a kind of psychopharmacology, um, as a way of administering, um, uh, you know, it, it offers you, look, you're depressed, you're lonely, uh, so social networks are breaking down, and this is the crucial thing. For the last few decades, social networks, interactions have become uh, more and more etiolated. Um, the, mm. you know, on every index, people are meeting less, they're dating less, they're having less sex, they're going to the pub less. The kinds of drugs that you associate with sociality, like uh, booze and alcohol, sorry, booze and fags, people are doing those things less. Uh, and uh, the drugs that people do take are much more about, you know, individual tripping and all the rest of it. So there's a, a generalized decline in sociality. And mm. along comes uh, in 2011, 
um, you know, it, I mean, obviously, social uh, platforms go back way before then. But in 2011, you get ubiquitous smartphone ownership um, in uh, the sort of European and North American economies. And uh, this is just in the, uh, in, the, in the course of, you know, the austerian um, streamline, streamlining of capitalism um, amid very low growth and few opportunities, especially for young people. And it's sort of like this is this is the network will substitute for your society. There is no society anymore. OK, go on Twitter. You'll always find somebody to talk to. You can write to whoever you like. You can write yeah. to, you know, jihadists, porn stars. You can write to the queen. You can even write to people you bloody well hate. Um, you can stalk people that you never used to, you know, that you that used to bother you at school or that you fancy or whatever. All of this, you know, so it gives you a dark offer alongside, you know, the, the offer of relief from a certain amount of alienation and so on. Um, so there's a sense in which it's um, offering an addiction as a solution to a depression. Yeah. And, um, you know, I should mention, by the way, that the, you know, in the same decades in which sociality has been declining, depression has been increasing pretty consistently. Um, and, you know, it's not clear in what order of causality um, that correlation exists. There's but, um, there's a yeah. quote from um, from Mark Fisher's Capitalist Realism that I think about an awful lot in relation to that. Um, I mean, and without wishing to kind of obfuscate the kind of biological and neurochemical aspects of it, but uh, Fisher talks about the fact that uh, to be young in Britain is almost pathological because the the the, the incidence of depression uh, is just so staggeringly high. And in fact, the kind of costs of capital, capitalism firstly barely seems to work and the costs of it working uh, just upon the individual's quality of life seems to be enormous. Um, uh, he, and he was talking about it in the con in the context of his teaching uh, at an FE college, and this this state of depressive hedonia, this this um, apathetic plugging into the 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 sociality matrix of 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 the cyber social industry. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so I think I think that's a really interesting and really troubling point, but raises the 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 point again that we can't simply kind of abandon the network because how can you and as you pointed out it, it also not only is it a a antidepressant for a depression caused by the same systems that birthed it but it is also a a, a, a spark of sociality and connection that can also be enormously productive well it's nothing but production in a way but here's the problem um which is yes it's offered as a solution to depression but uh you know, as I mentioned, all uh, of the surveys that I was able to find showed that it actually made that depression worse. Mm. Um, so the, it's it's one of those uh, cures that are worse than than the disease. Uh, the, the reason we can't go back on it, the reason we can't just put it, um, put the genie back in the bottle, as it were, um, is because uh, you can't, in this society, uh, turn down the advantages of a system that is so thoroughly networked. It's partly the user effect. The more people use it, um, the more useful it is. And if you uh, turn it down, then you're de denying yourself possibly job opportunities, you're denying yourself dating opportunities. Yeah. You know, um, all of that sort of stuff. So um, it becomes logical and not pathological to become addicted um, in a certain manner of speaking. Um, the other thing about it is, you know, I mean, 
of course we can talk about a neurochemical uh, level at which addiction takes place. In the same way, we can talk about uh, a neurochemical level at which love takes place, at which any other sort of emotional or mental state or process takes place. Um, and that's all very legitimate. I mean, how could it not be? We are biological creatures. But we, you know, I mean, the thing about it is, is that if if somebody advanced a chemical theory of love and said, well, you know, it's it's just the equivalent of eating a load of chocolate or something like that, you'd think that was incredibly crude and reductionist, and it is. Um, yeah. And in the same way, the the dominant theory of addiction, which is that it's all about dopamine, um, is uh, ironically, first of all, it, it's it's not true. Um, neuroscientists will tell you dopamine doesn't give you any kind of a high. What it is involved with um, is um, uh, the capacity to uh, want something, to have appetite, to hunger for something. So that's important, um, but it's not the same thing as saying that dopamine gives you a high. Um, but second of all, um, the theory of uh, you know getting a dopamine boost every time you see your notifications, you know, or something like that. This is the theory of the social industry itself. This is how they explain their practices to themselves, and mm. you get a lot from sort of a lot of these conscience-stricken ex-social industry bosses um, who've uh, now quit and they've made their millions and now they can own up to what they did. They say, you know, we knew what we were doing. We exploited this um, weakness in human psychology. It's what a hacker would do. And basically, we knew that if we set up this social validation feedback loop, um, you know, people would become hooked on it and they just keep repeating it over and over again. They become dependent on social validation, the likes and so on. Mm. Well, that's all very well, um, except, of course, you know, there the, the, the doesn't appear to be any neurochemical basis for that at all. Um, but the other thing is um, a lot of people's behavior suggests that actually the likes aren't the most interesting part. I mean, sure, you know, we all like approval sometimes, but the, the bits where it gets really compulsively engaging is when it drives you up the wall. Yes. Um, and this uh, is the hate reading or hate posting or yeah the... or, or when you know like when when people are going after you and like monstering you or when they're monstering somebody you care about or when you've just read uh yeah as you say like stuff that you find absolutely unbelievably awful and you feel like you have to engage you have to write back um, my sort of example in the book is uh, what happened with Mary Beard. You know, uh, she said something on the social industry about Haiti. Um, I don't want to go through the details, but basically we could say um, – we could use the cop out and say it was hashtag problematic. You know, there mm. there was something she hadn't really thought it through, uh, whatever. But basically, whatever she was thinking, Twitter was not the best place to make her observation. She was uh, sort of uh, vilified as a racist, um, as a colonialist. Uh, you know, I mean, and to be honest, you, you could say some of those critiques might have been fair enough. Yeah. But the problem is that aggregated together, it's really hard to tell apart legitimate critique from just downright sadism. But the thing about it is, is that when she saw that this was a reaction, she couldn't let go. She had to keep arguing and trying to reason with people and vindicate herself. And it's a bit like when you're in a relationship with an emotionally abusive lover and they're, you know, you can never tell, you know, what sort of mood they're going to be in and how do you keep them on side? And, you know, um, you're intrigued by their indifference to you. And, you know, how can you please them? All of that sort of stuff. This is what it's like. It's that mercurial 
sort of way in which it can suddenly, uh, you know, turn from showering you with praise to telling you you're a scumbag and smacking you around. Mm. Um, and that seems to be, as much as anything, what's compulsive about it. And to be honest, if we think about addictions, um, think about the, the addictions we know, they all have a well-known um, sort of death drive, as it were. In, in other words, basically, you, you know, you're going to harm yourself quite seriously. Um, so even something like gambling, which doesn't involve a, a direct physical risk, well, you know, you know, the whole point about being a gambler is you get the, the kick out of anteing up when the stakes are ludicrously against you um, and taking that huge risk. And um, the thing about it is you, you might lose your livelihood, you might lose your home, you might lose your family, you might cause yourself to get uh, a beating from debt collectors, all that sort mm. of stuff. Um, heroin addicts, the situation is much more clear. Uh, cigarette addicts, well, you know what it says on the packet, this will kill you. Great, that's the market. That's the that's the packaging. That's the marketing for you. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. We are imbibing small quantities of death. We're, so, so it's not like we don't know about the dark sides of the social industry. We don't. It's not like we don't know about the the, the tempestuous nastiness of these various platforms. This is really very obvious to everybody, and yet it's when it turns like that that actually we can't pull ourselves away. And you know, I say this as somebody who's been on all sides of that. I've been the online vigilante hounding something, somebody for something bad they said. And, and I've also, of course, you know, I've said terrible things and, you know, had the shitstorm come down on me. I've been the troll. I've been the, the, the witch hunter, all of that sort of stuff. So basically I'm saying that um, I, can, I can fully see why it's so compulsive. But the name that Freud gave uh, to that pursuit of unpleasure um, uh, was the death drive. And mm. That's something that can't be explained with reference to dopamine and rewards. I think again, this is this is another connection with horror. One of the one of the kind of most basic ideas of the encounter with the monster is both repulsion and attraction. Yeah. And and both of those being simultaneously true and not contradictory. So we we come across the very uh, the potential for the very worst parts of ourselves, and we are kind of we're but we are repulsed by it. But at the same time, uh, there's a there's a there's a Twitter joke that floats around every so often, in the, usually in the wake of one of these shitstorms, uh, which is I can't remember who it's from, but they say uh, every day Twitter has a main character. Your job is to try not to be it. Mm. Uh, which is a great way of encapsulating everything that you've been saying, right? The, 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 the kind of visceral thrill of spectating as as the horde, as the mass, as the uh, the the anonymous fury gets righteously directed, or maybe even not so righteously directed. Yeah. Um, and and you know we might we might then go in a kind of like good liberal platitudinous way to wonder oh isn't it so terrible what social media is doing to the discourse but it's like actually this is this is exactly what there's a bit of us that wants this to be the discourse that we want this mm. grim uh, dark satisfaction of watching uh, you know somebody's digital brand fall in on top of them yeah I mean. Um... 
you could compare horror stories to fairy tales, which often have a strong horror element to them. You know, um, Bettelheim talked about uh, fairy tales giving coded expression to childhood sexuality, aggression, you know, basically giving an acceptable and reassuring format uh, Mm. to them. Well, if you think about the kinds of fairy tales slash horror stories that the right believes in today, um, they think immigration is invasion. They used to talk about death panels under Obama, talked about concentration camps, white genocide, Islamization, the Great Replacement, genocide by substitution, uh, communism, you know, without communism, all of that stuff. Um, and if you think about what's uh, what's at stake there, uh, it, they, they are hallucinating this catastrophe, this Mm. catastrophic breakdown of uh, society and this comprehensive conquest and domination by, uh, you know, globalists, cultural Marxists, whomever. Um, And um, on the one hand, you can see, obviously, you know, it's terrifying, um, but it also obviously brings them a certain delight and satisfaction. Mm. Um, And I think that, uh, you know, I don't want to get into a sort of uh, the area of outright misanthropy of saying, you know, people are shit and, you know, we all we all like uh, sort of uh, being sadistic towards one another. I do think um, that we have these capacities. Um, I think that anybody who wants to imagine that there's such a thing as human nature and that it's fundamentally good um, is is probably quite dangerous, to be honest. But um, I also think that um, there are ways of organizing our society um, that either magnify and potentiate these ten- tendencies or which can mitigate them and minimize them and uh, conduce them, conduct them in a rational way or at least in a productive way. Um, and my fear is that the Twittering machine is on the side of magnifying and potentiating these tendencies yeah. um, because, you know, it's on the one hand, it's, you know, it, it minimizes responsibility. Uh, if you think about the kinds of people who um, go after a kid who's been bullied um, because it turns out that his mom is a racist or something like that, you know, um, it's something ridiculous. This actually happened, of course. Um, and uh, the individually, their responsibility for bullying this kid in a way worse way than uh, his uh, school bullies have done. Mm -hmm. Uh, Individually, it was um, minuscule. It was homeopathic. You know, it was point point zero 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 a decimal point, basically, uh, of of the total. And yet, aggregated together, it's a monster. Um, And that's the thing. We can be shielded from the consequence of our actions by being part of um, an instantly aggregated mass. Uh, And it's a new way of creating masses. I mean, for all the talk about, you know, the the liberation of the individual on the social industry, um, one of the things that it does is fragment individuals in new ways by, you know, basically reducing you to a series of enterprises. You know, it's neoliberal ontology 101. Uh, Mm. You are uh, your Twitter account, your Facebook account, your Instagram account, and they're all different enterprises. The other thing it does is that it uh, it creates new massifications. It uh, aggregates you aggregates you with others based upon sentiment, um, and then creates new identitarian uh, groupings, um, which uh, tend to endure. So um, this is. Um, it's not a straightforward case of, you know, 
the social industry doing this to the discourse. Um, it's rather just taking hold of stuff that was already there. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you, you know, if you want to see the precursors to these kinds of, um, you know, online witch hunts and what have you, well, the tabloid press has been doing this for bonkers, you know, uh, for donkey's years, mm-hmm. and um, they've been um, sort of widely read and uh, appreciated, and you know, they've driven people to suicide. Um, and you know, there's never been any accountability about this. Um, so this is obviously, uh, uh, you know, the social industry is a new um, phenomenon. Um, it represents um, a stage in an emerging techno-political regime. This is quite crucial. It isn't in its final state. Uh, so the Twittering machine is just a snapshot of something that is in evolution. Um, and therefore, there's a lot about it that we don't know. Um and there's a lot about it that may be positive um, that we will see. But all the signs thus far are that it harnesses and magnifies the stuff that previously would um, have been filtered out um, by, you know, cultural gatekeepers and all the rest of it. Or mm-hmm. even just by, uh, you know, manners. I mean, because manners apparently is something you uh, easily dispense with on uh, the internet. I'm not being precious about that. I, I, I've done that myself. But the point is that everyday sort of manners and good behavior, you know, the, just the ordinary respect you extend one adult to another completely disappears on these platforms. Um, so, yeah. One thing I wanted to to kind of pick up on from what you've been talking about is the ways in which um, a lot of work which is not grounded in a kind of historical materialism or or Marxist approach to a lot of this stuff. And I, I uh, really struggles to understand the relationships of production. You talked, you talked here about the, the kind of co- constant drive to be productive. Uh, and one, one, uh, uh, ghoul, one ghost that seems to be haunting an awful lot of people who comment upon this is, uh, the ghost of postmodernism. The specters of Derrida and Foucault have been, blamed for a kind of rise in relativism in obfuscation in in basically trying to bring it bring down the the kind of the fall of the fall of civilization if you will um you know the usual suspects are behind this the the people who are uh, oxymoronically called the intellectual dark web um i was just wondering it's one of my favorite sections of the book if you could talk a little bit about what you think this uh, the relationship between writing and reading, production and postmodernity is really like. Okay, well, first of all, just to be uh, sort of to, to situate this, um, this sort of uh, what you might call this homophobic tendency um, in intellectual life is mm. particularly concentrated. It used to be something that I encountered on the hard left or the far left um, among people who thought that it was, uh, you know, postmodernism was, uh, uh, you know, the decadence of the 68 generation rejecting class politics and so on. It's now... Uh, the um, 
distress call of the centrist losing an argument, you know, essentially, <laughs> um, uh, you know, especially, you know, in, in Anglophone centrists. It's essentially it's a way for them to explain how um, masses of people don't any longer care whether Hillary Clinton is uh, qualified for the job or not, um, mm. but are willing to listen to uh, someone like Donald Trump um, and believe the most outlandish things. Okay, so their explanation is that there was once upon a time some uh, snooty French intellectuals who got it into their heads that, hey, like, you know, reality is totally socially constructed. It's not real in any real sense. It's just like constructed. Um, and therefore, everything's relative. Um, and it's all about narratives. And, and so, I mean, basically, they have this comic book version of, uh, you know, what postmodernism I don't even know if postmodernism is a, it's a coherent category, but as mm. far as we can talk about it, this is uh, just a comic book nonsense. And the you know the the result is that it allows idiots um, like uh, uh, I can't remember the name of the alt right figure who says that he read Lacan. Was it Ben Shapiro or somebody like that? Uh, it was probably this, Shapiro, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, and he's sort of talking about, well, you know, if it's all about narratives, then, uh, you know, we need to have another narrative. Hey, I don't look like somebody who read Lacan at college, do I? I think, I mean, it's possible <laughs> that he read a bit of Lacan at college. <laughs> Uh, but Lacan wasn't necessarily associated with the idea that it's all just narrative. <laughs> um, and Derrida and Foucault, did they write about social construction? I mean, for God's sake, this social constructivism, you can trace. I mean, there are lots of different ways of arguing this case. But one way of arguing is you can trace it back to Kant. You, mm -hmm. know? Uh, you can trace it back to Enlightenment ideology. Um, you know, there's at one point a stage in uh, Michiko Kakitani's book where where she says something like, uh, you know, the postmodern belief that people's um, uh, sort of knowledge is shaped by their uh, particular time and place. And, and that's supposed to be an awful example of relativism. And I think but that's just basic materialism. It's not radical materialism. It's not Marxism. It's just basic materialism. It's enlightenment materialism. It's the most obvious thing in the world. Mm. Um, the situatedness of knowledge. This is not, uh, you know, so they are, this This is a, a straw figure. Uh, this is a farmer's market full of uh, red herrings. This is uh, a complete nonsense. Um but, um, or in uh, the British context, John Bullshit. But it's, it, <laughs> yeah, it's also... It's, it's also a way of um, sort of not thinking through what's really happened because I think there is a deep-rooted crisis of knowledge in our society. Mm. Now, the social industry is partly uh, responsible for that uh, in as much as it has accelerated and radicalised existing trends. But look at what it's radicalised. I mean, take, for example, uh, Mark Zuckerberg's uh, famous um, and quickly retracted statement that he wouldn't have a problem with Holocaust denial material on his website if some people found that useful. And that was basically, uh, you could sort of say he probably thought, well, that's you can't object to that. That's free speech. Um, but it, of course, it, it you know, people didn't see it like that and he had to retract it. But the thing about it is that he told the truth the first time round. 
mm. because there's a reason why Facebook has been able to make profit off uh, people like Tommy Robinson, Alex Jones, and so on. And, you know, um, essentially, they are content agnostic. As I said, with, with comparison to those Cold War print empires, the Murdoch press, the Axel Springer press, they don't care about ideological agendas in any straightforward sense. Are you sure they have some uh, broad political positions? They're broadly aligned to the Democratic Party center. But, you know, they, they don't really want to use their, their um, sort of platforms to advance an ideological agenda. Um, and if you think about um, the old sort of newspaper industry, that content agnosticism was already uh, there in a way um, in the form of advertising funded uh, newspapers. In other words, insofar as they depended for the majority of their funding on advertisers, advertisers didn't care what went on in the paper. What they really cared about, apart from if their clients were insulted in any way, but what they really cared about was the audience. So as long as you can pull the audience in, sure, just put what you want in there. But mm -hmm. There um, were countervailing factors. One was, of course, the uh, interests of the uh, proprietors, you know, um, who usually were pursuing some sort of ideological agenda. Uh, they were often linked to parties and party state apparatuses. You know, El Pais in Spain is linked to the Socialist Party. Obviously, uh, the Murdoch Press is linked to the Conservative Party. Um, uh, the Springer Press is linked to Christian democracy in Germany and so on. And, of course, beyond that, journalists have their own professional ideology, their own sense of what a newspaper is, what it should, uh, what, what reporting is, what a news value is, how a newspaper is made up, what, what sort of contents it should have. Facebook is much more efficient at distributing uh, bits and pieces of knowledge because it doesn't really care about that. What it cares about, crucially, um, is impact, somatic impact. So um, there's, you know, an implied belief among social media executives that, uh, you know, their platforms somehow select for accuracy. You know, like uh, whatever bad speech there is on the platform can always be made up for with good speech. But the reality is that they don't select for accuracy. They couldn't select for accuracy. Because accuracy is not particularly exciting in most cases, you know, the world being complicated and messy. Um, they select for somatic impact. They select for whatever's going to goad you into writing more frantically to the machine. Mm. And that is uh, taking hold of an existing tendency in the mass media. Um, you know, the tendency to just be interested in goading people into paying attention um, and into shaping people as subjects who think about themselves as paying attention, as uh, being able to give uh, portions of attention to little bits of stimulus. Um, that was already underway and it's just been radicalized. So, uh, and you can link this to a whole series of other things. Uh, the decline of uh, political authority, well, we know why that is. The state has become less and less representative. Democracy has become more and more encircled. It's become a much weaker entity within the state. Uh, you know, the politicians um, uh, are much more constrained in their range of options, or have been until recently. Um, uh, we talk about the decline of experts, and, you know, why do people believe in um, bogus stories about 
about um, autism, for example. You know, why do people not trust the, what they used to call the men and women in white coats? Well, um, there's a lot going wrong in the sciences, actually. I mean, first of all, a lot of these conspiracy theories are based on something historical, like, for example, uh, if you're black in America, you might remember what happened with Tuskegee, you know, the deliberate yeah. infection of black men with syphilis, you know. Um, if you're um, sort of paying attention to the sciences, you might know that there's quite a lot of uh, bogus papers being drafted by shadowy sort of corporate networks and uh, dark think tanks and all the rest of it, um, uh, which are just completely junk science and which are used to promote, say, this or that pharmaceutical product. Um, and as well as well as the the absolutely endemic replication crisis that goes through an awful lot of um, psychology, for for instance, um, which adds a, a, adds a delicious layer of irony to to Jordan Peterson wailing about postmodernism and relativism uh, oh, yeah. whilst whilst working in a field that can never substantiate its own results. <laughs> Well, absolutely. But also, I mean, it's not just the, the, the psychology. I mean, I would expect that not to be able to uh, replicate its own results. The replication crisis is going on in the hard sciences, too. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's really widespread. There's something about the current understanding of science that is actually in crisis. And it's no good trying to blame all that on nasty Derrida and nasty Foucault <laughs> uh, for their cultural relativism and yada, yada. Um, they, they're... Um, there is another aspect, which, of course, is the fact that, you know, uh, one of the people that gets vilified in these books about postmodernism is uh, Baudrillard. Mm. Um, and he's actually very interesting. And what he's being condemned for is actually perspicacity and farsightedness, because, you know, he saw a time in which, um, you know, your individual human worth would be based upon your social connectedness. Uh, he saw a time in which um, essentially the reality principle, how you distinguish between uh, an illusion and a reality, um, uh, was going to collapse. I mean, it, it, he argued it was already collapsing with 24-hour news and all the rest of it. But, mm -hmm. you know, if you think about what a simulacrum is, a simulacrum is just a digital, uh, an image produced by digital writing. Okay, uh, that's one way to talk about it. But that essentially is what you see on your computer screens and your smartphone screens and your iPad screens. It is uh, a, an image or a series of images generated by digital writing. Mm -hmm. uh, as Sandy Baldwin puts it in the Internet Unconscious, everything that you see on the Internet and indeed on your computer is writing. If you look at a file, if you look at um, a window, um, you, what you are seeing is a visual abstract representation of writing, of a process of writing. And that's all it is. So, I mean, it's a bit like the, the sort of the, the, the issue with the matrix, you know, where essentially you, you're seeing all these images, but behind it lies streams and streams of writing. That's your simulacrum. And mm. if you spend, as, say, Americans do, 11 to 12 hours a day um, looking at screens and mediating your working and social life through these screens, 
then it's not a question of them, uh, these screens not being real or these images not being real. They are. They're Mm. they're your reality. So there's a whole series of processes, changes to capitalism, changes to um, our economic system, changes to political authority that have been long underway and which have been radicalized by the social industry in various different directions. Uh, They've been ramified um, and... You know, there is a group of people who essentially are wedded to the status quo, don't want to ask any deep questions about what was wrong beforehand, um, and are therefore using this uh, postmodernism as a bogey scapegoat. And it's essentially, um, it is, as I say, it's it's a conspiracy theory about conspiracy theories. It's it's a way of explaining away um, a, a deeply rooted social problem by. Picking out a scapegoat and an easy bad guy. Yeah, I mean, I, I, whilst I do think that postmodernism itself is a very contested term, mm. you know, to to think of it as, as as the cultural logic of the capitalism of late, uh, I think is enormously useful and allows us to kind of see those long-standing forces yeah. um, that Jameson was write, writing about back in the eighties that that, yeah. that, Mark, that Mark Fisher put his own kind of accelerationist twist on in two thousand nine, mm-hmm. uh, and that Baudrillard was writing about in the 90s um and as you say i think i think for this particular brand of kind of liberal bourgeois centrist intellectual postmodernism is the convenient scapegoat to, to kind of obscure their own colossal and systemic failures yes absolutely um and it's it's also you know it's 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 uh, crushingly depressing um, to see that this is what counts for intellectual work uh, in mm. this day and age. Um, to see that there are people being quoted as if they're geniuses for uh, making this claim about postmodernism. And apart from anything else, Deleuze, Foucault, uh, Derrida, they would not have called themselves postmodernists. I don't think they ever mentioned this term. This no. was a term that was used largely in the Anglophone world. And it summed up a whole bunch of discrete uh, trends and tendencies in the arts, in in social sciences, philosophy and whatnot. Um, And it's somehow um, become something that they did to us. Um, It it just it it staggers me that people can be that thoroughly fundamentally stupid. Um, uh, But then I don't know. This is this is capitalist culture. Maybe this is what I should expect. (laughs) Uh, yeah, Nathan Robinson in his excellent uh, profile and kind of long, exhaustive reading of Peterson's uh, talks about Peterson being the, the the public intellectual that we deserve. And I can't think really of any more damning criticism of the kind of intellectual discourse in which we all exist, that that is un- inarguably true. Yeah. Um, and to kind of wrap things up a little bit, there's one there's one last thing that I wanted to to briefly touch on. Um, the book uh, itself has a very uh, interesting dedication. Uh, the book is is uh, dedicated to the Luddites, um, <laughs> which uh, which immediately caught my attention. I was wondering. What what do you think? Uh, yeah, uh, could you could you maybe draw out a little bit of this? Because you, you say a kind of modern ludditeism is is, a, is an entirely, uh, in fact, reasonable position. Yeah. Um, so I was wondering whether you could talk a little bit about that to kind of bring a few things that we've touched on uh, to a conclusion. 
Well, just to say, I mean, they told me you have to have a dedication. Um, uh, and I said, well, uh, <laughs> the hell with it. Call it to the Luddites, okay? <laughs> um, because, you know, uh, anyway, but the, it's true that towards the end of the book, I bring up uh, the Luddites as an example of one way to think about a radical movement that engages with technology, which is what they did. Now, they have been monstered. They've been called technophobes. Totally untrue. And I think by now, it's quite reasonably well known uh, by those who pay attention to this sort of stuff that uh, they were not technophobes. They simply wanted to ensure that the machines were not being used to dominate the working class and to increase exploitation and so on. And they uh, were an incredibly imaginative political movement, uh, you know, um, uh, engaging in a lot of what we would call trolling, the happy mm. side of trolling and, you know, cross-dressing and all the rest of it. They were um, very funny. Um, you know, uh, I, I suppose... I suppose, uh, you know, you could see in some aspects of what they did a kind of situationism of Art Lettre. But um, the point is that um, they recognized technology as, um, I mean, they didn't use these terms, but I'm going to use them, as the condensation and crystallization of social forces, right? Mm. So uh, it's not just a question of like, uh, let's go and smash up these machines and everything will be okay. They recognized that this was the power of uh, some new social force, um, which came to be called capital. Um, and they lost, of course. Um, you know, I mean, unfortunately, the, the history of most social movements is that um, they lose. We, you know, the the path to victory is strewn with nothing but thunderous defeats. Uh, defeats, as I think Rosa Luxemburg once said. Yeah. Um, uh, it's a you know, uh, it's it's just the reality of political life, especially if you're on the left in any way. Um, but you do get there in the end sometimes. So that I mean, I would not literally suggest that we should form some kind of Luddite tribute act. But I would suggest having something of that attitude. It's not about, you know, you know, the bad technology and the bad tech, tech giants and all the rest of it. It is rather we need to have a radical um, critique of the industry and the uh, machinery of writers and writing. And this is where I'll sort of wrap it up. Because... Um, you know, I mentioned earlier Sandy Baldwin's observation that everything on the internet is writing, and that's true, and it's also true that everything on your computer screen is writing. Um, essentially, what is happening here is that we are being written into a new uh, social and political order, which uh, it's impossible to foresee exactly where it will go. Um, but if you look at the history of writing, you can see that this is really a fundamental change. Writing is the Ur technology. No writing, yeah. no technology, um, no modern civilization, right? And if you look at the history of it, uh, let me say, um, uh, for a few thousand years, it's been alphabetic. For 600 years, it's been print, okay? So mm. that lent itself to um, certain forms of cognition, uh, certain linear ways of thinking. Digital te t writing is very, very different. It's not uh, indexed to the human voice, um, and it's really indexed to control, uh, to a mm. set of controls. So it's not about meaning at all. Um, and the fact that uh, the old hierarchies of writing are being destabilized um, and upset 
um, tells us something about the kinds of futures that we might be being written into. Because if you think about uh, older hierarchies that are based upon, I don't know, um, the you know at the top there's the Holy Bible or uh, the the Constitution or something like that. Some sort of sacred document sits at the top. And from that, we glean all the important uh, sort of lessons we need about how to run our society. And then you have, you know, political systems, education systems, mass media, all the rest of it, all these different systems of writing down to the lowliest person scribbling in a diary. Okay. Um, well, uh, that's based upon hierarchies of meaning uh, and signification. And in other words, power has to justify itself to us in some way or other. Yeah. But you get d digital writing becoming the error writing of modern capitalist civilization. It doesn't need justification any longer. It creates a set of facts. It just is. Mm. Um, so that, you know, it's the taken for granted precondition for anything to happen. Uh, and once these things are established, they're very, very hard to reverse. So we need um, to think now, if we are you know, going to be writing so much, and we're really writing more than we ever have before in the history of humanity, when did we ever spend our lunch hours, our tube journeys, you know, uh, uh, spare moments writing? But this is what we're doing now. Um, but if we are going to do that, if we're going to be scripturians, as I like to say, which is to be possessed with a violent desire to write, then um, how can we liberate that desire? What, can, what else can we do with it? Um, it's the minimum utopian question. What mm. else could we be doing if not this? I think that's an excellent, I think that's an excellent question to end on. Um, I I can't I can't recommend the book highly enough to everybody. I I read it in a matter of days and it and it caused me to sort of seriously try and rethink exactly how and and why I was spending my t so much of my time uh, on social media desperately producing. Um and it also encouraged me to spend a lot of more lot more of my time actually writing in a way that was not productive that was not actually kind of producing content uh, Excellent. Make, <laughs> which I, I can't think of any any better outcome for reading this book um but again just to just to close things off um please do uh follow richard on twitter at leninology um you can you can support his work and get access to the daily diary his uh, incisive political writing uh, through patreon and please also do think about checking out salvage magazine who do um some of my some of my favorite essays of the last few years have been published there um but richard thank you so much oh thank you it's been a real pleasure Thanks for tuning in, creeps and comrades. And remember, stay, stay spooky.